massive trend in this bill for onshoring and supply chain that's going to be good for jobs, good for our economy, and good that we're not dependent on hostile powers for the things that we need to power, literally power our economy. The biggest climate spending bill ever, the climate bill we've been waiting for, we'll discuss on this episode of Political Climate, a bi-weekly podcast on energy and environmental issues in America and around the world, presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute and in partnership with Canary Media. I'm your host, Julia Piper, as always, and today I'm joined by my wonderful co-hosts, Brandon Hurlbutt and Shane Skelton. Both of them are back on the podcast. Good which to is back. Awesome. Brandon is back. We finally got on his calendar. That's because Brandon's very busy being a clean tech investor, founder of Boundary Stone Partners, and climate advocate. Also, Shane, very, very busy, especially these last few days, I know for a fact, being an advisor on energy infrastructure and environmental policy issues, also at Boundary Stone Partners, as well as our resident expert on all things on Capitol Hill, having spent many years working on the Hill himself. <sighs> How are you guys doing? Have you been spending as much time as I have reading through very boring legal text of this Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, it's been insane. And ironically, like, the summaries that the committee staff themselves put together like aren't fully accurate. Oh and so gosh. with some of these like larger bills, you can usually lean on that because it's 100 pages instead of 800 pages. But as you know, in the business world, Julia, like you can't guess. <laughs> it's got to be like it's got to be right. And so uh, it's been it's been quite an experience. What's so fun is we've been doing this podcast for years, hoping for this moment. And the three of us have been so busy in this moment we haven't had a chance to discuss it. So we're actually going to do it live for all of you. We yeah. <laughs> are hot takes together. <laughs> yeah, we haven't even had like our Slack channel discussions on this yet. We've been so heads down. And yeah, having gone from the journalism world covering these things to now doing it at a company, Goodleap, where we finance the clean energy you know, revolution, it's been so interesting. I thought I would escape deadlines, but turns out, no, you take the same late nights and weekends when you're communicating internally as externally. Um, but that's because we have good things to talk about, I think. Yeah, well, we all got caught so flat-footed too, right? I mean, like, if this was a normal bill, we would have never stopped working on it, like, day-to-day. So you'd know every provision inside and out. I think everyone was looking at, okay, what's next? This bill is dead, and we need to get some some good energy and climate policy done before the end of the year. And so it was just sort of a lack of focus on these specific provisions. And, then, of course, they changed dramatically too, and then you had to read the whole thing within, like, a day uh, before they were going to take it up. But it is truly a unique experience, in my at least in my experience. So let's level set here. After months of negotiations, we'll all remember, suddenly, seemingly out of the blue, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Senator Joe Manchin announced in late July that they had a deal to vote on a reconciliation package that would include some provisions that were initially part of the Build Back Better plan. There was around $500 billion or $550 billion for climate and clean energy programs in that Build Back Better Act, which passed in the House last year. Of course, we'll all remember Senator Manchin, you know, nixed that at the end of December. And even as recently as earlier in July, it looked like he was going to be a no vote on a package. Boom, we get news of this new agreement. And suddenly, as you just referenced, Shane, we all really got to work. So we're speaking now on Monday, August 8th. On Sunday, August 7th, the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022 officially passed in the Senate on a 50-50 vote along party lines, with the tie-breaking vote coming from Vice President Kamala Harris. So where do we stand now? 
The new bill has a total revenue raise of $739 billion, a total investment of $433 billion, and it still contains a huge amount of spending for climate protection and clean energy. In the version that passed the Senate, we're looking at about $369 billion over 10 years. So a haircut from where we started, but still a pretty substantial and incredible, and in fact, the largest investment in climate in U.S. history. So quickly on the impact, according to Princeton University's Repeat Act, as well as firms like Rhodium Group and Energy Innovation, this bill could allow the U.S. to cut greenhouse gas emissions by roughly 40% below 2005 levels by 2030. So that's just around the corner and a pretty big deal. So first, I want to talk to you guys about how we got here. I guess, Brandon, going to you first, you've been in the room with a bunch of people working on this on the Democrat side. How did this go from Build Back Better, President Biden's large vision for everything from child care to health care to climate to now this much you know, more narrow bill and still historic bill that really centers climate and clean energy, even over those other social programs, just a sort of level set. How do we end up with climate and clean energy being the focus of reconciliation and shift away from these other priorities? Because the climate movement built power. That's what we've talked about on this show you know, for the last couple of years, is that in order to get something like this done, you have to have a strong inside game which you know required Senator Schumer and other senators like Senator Heinrich, uh, frequent guest of the pod, working closely with Senator Manchin on that inside part to get a deal done and Senator Cinema, but that outside you know power that we built to keep this at the top of the list to keep this sort of sacrosanct and that is built on decades of people working tirelessly on this movement from frontline communities you know from big green groups from all the economic innovation that we're seeing and the ability to create so many jobs and wealth for people to making people's lives better by reducing pollution and people seeing that to some of the national security angles of this as well. I mean, we are in an energy war right now with Ukraine uh, and Russia that is impacting everybody across the world. China is making big moves on clean energy and climate and trying to dominate this market. And I think people have seen that we need to step up and compete if we want to own, you know, those technologies and those jobs that come with it. So it's the combination of a lot of things that got us here, but it's the tireless work of many on the inside, including those Senate staffers uh, working through the night all week to this outside movement that has become very powerful. It's worth taking a moment to note that because if you were just thinking politically, you might have thought other types of programs would have succeeded over climate and clean energy ones like childcare, universal pre-K, things that I think a lot of families would benefit from right away. And yet somehow the climate and clean energy movement proved that you can also benefit right away from these programs that are included in the Inflation Reduction Act. So that's a major milestone, I think, for the movement overall, as you're talking about. And we will get into more of the exact details of this bill, but I do want to stay on the context a little bit more. Um, Shane, how do you think we got blindsided by this bill? You'll remember Manchin saying as recently as July, he couldn't come to an agreement on this bill. Interestingly, we saw Congress go ahead and pass a bill called Creating Helpful Incentives to Produce Semiconductors or CHIPS Act, a bill that some people will remember. Senator McConnell, Mitch McConnell, a Republican, said he would not pass, would not vote for that bill, a bipartisan bill, if Democrats were pursuing reconciliation. 
that CHIPS bill passes and boom, we get news that uh, Senator Manchin is going to support reconciliation. So a little interesting twist of timing there. It almost seemed as though Democrats were playing Republicans to a point of getting them to pass CHIPS and turn around and pass reconciliation. But I want to know your read on this, Shane. What do you think happened there that just got Manchin over that finish line at the last minute? Yeah, I mean, I don't know if we'll ever fully know, right? I mean, it seems impossible to me that A, he had a complete about face in the matter of like 48 hours, which is different than, you know, over the course of of a month or two. B, this bill looked a lot different. It had a lot of the similar provisions, but it looked a lot different from the bill that the Senate Finance Committee released in December, that the House passed, you know, last summer. And so there's just no way that they put it together in two days that, oh, you know what? Change our mind. Let's do it. Let's put this together. So a lot of people were working hard on this. Senator Manchin's staff wouldn't have been working hard if there were no chance he was ever going to vote for it, because obviously you'd be focused on other priorities. So certainly there's more that meant than meets the eye. It is possible that he was, you know, trying to get some leverage and get more of that money to go to deficit reduction rather than additional spending priorities. It's possible he was trying to trim, you know, some of the items in the bill that he doesn't like as much and add to some of the the items in the bill he does like. I mean, it's not for me to say, but certainly the public posture of he's not going to vote for it if you really want to get it done gave him, you know, the ability to have a lot stronger say um, in the bill. And I think the McConnell piece is very real. I mean, They passed chips and like two hours later, they announced this deal. So it could very well be that Senator Manchin was very upset with McConnell for trying to hold, you know, one piece of legislation hostage to another piece and decided to to get, you know, a little tomfoolery. But what I will never know, maybe, you know, is that how involved was the White House? Like how well planned was this? So, for example, when Manchin said, I'm not going to do this, but I'm willing to talk about the health care spending, if that was a ruse to get McConnell. And again, I don't know that. But if it was. Mind you, the White House came out and said, this is the best we're going to get. August recess is coming up. Let's just pass the darn health care piece and move on. Now, did they really believe that? Or was this like one elaborate ruse that everyone was sort of, you know, marching in line with? I don't know the answer to that question, but I, I do know that it is not possible that they wrote a 745 page bill in 48 hours. So there was a lot more going on than meets the eye. A decade ago, Californians started a climate action movement and launched MCE, the state's first community choice energy provider. Community choice providers empower local communities to make their own decisions about the source of their electricity. Today, MCE offers nearly 40 Bay Area communities almost twice as much renewable energy as the state average. The power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. Learn more at mcecleanenergy.org. Shane, I have a question for you. What was remarkable is the political coalition that supports the Inflation Reduction Act. I mean, you had everything from almost all the utilities, EEI, you know, the Edison Electric Institute that represents utilities. You had major oil and gas companies came out and supported uh, this bill. Why do you think we were unable to get one Republican senator to support it. I mean, these are tax credits by and large. What prevents Republican one Republican from from supporting this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, you're right that industry was far more um, supportive than, of course, they were of previous iterations or previous discussions about climate policy. I think part of the reason for that is it's all carrots and no sticks. Everyone gets free money, right? Like you get a little more freedom on your permitting, uh, more areas are available for for oil and gas, domestic manufacturing gets a boost. So, you know, for industry, there's a lot to like. 
I think for Republicans, you know, they don't love trillion dollar bills, you know, unless it's a straight like tax cut bill for the most part. Um, so that's one piece of it. Well, but it, it reduces the deficit, right? It's not just paid for. It actually does deficit reduction. I think, you know, process is certainly a huge part here. I think when you're excluded from a process and a trillion dollar bill, it's pretty darn hard to vote for it. Now, one can make the same arguments for Democrats because really no one was involved except for a, a handful of senators, Brennan, who you mentioned earlier. But but also we're in an election year. There's no way there's going to be this massive bipartisan kumbaya moment. Uh, it was never going to be a bipartisan. I think what Brandon's asking. Well, but the chips bill was bipartisan two weeks ago. But the chi- we're, we aren't running an election over, you know, uh, a microchip supply. The election <laughs> is over like your life sucks because energy prices are high and it's his fault. So to pass an energy bill that helps him is not a great political strategy. OK, we'll play that out because – I think the Democrats can now say we're doing something about it. We're doing something to reduce inflation. We're doing something to reduce your energy costs. I I don't see a plan that the Republicans have. How are they going to deal with that in the elections? Yeah, I mean, from a purely political perspective, which I think is the conversation we're having, even if what you just said is 100 percent right, that isn't going to be how Republicans message it. They're not going to be like, oh, you know what? We ended up voting for this Democratic bill because they're driving down energy costs for consumers. They're never going to say that. So what they're going to say is we had to vote against this trillion dollar bill. These poor fools can't help themselves. Every time they get power, they spend money and they're just going to make it worse. It doesn't really matter what's true. That has to be the message going into the November elections. And so once you lose a couple of your own, it gets tough. So let's think about other stakeholders here, because we've seen a lot of celebration about the Inflation Reduction Act. It is a historic investment in climate clean energy programs. I think four times what the 2009 Recovery Act did, which I think was on the order of $90 billion. And now we're looking at $370 billion, which is incredible. It's like the largest investment ever over 10 years, which is incredible certainty for the clean energy industry to have. But I think not everyone feels like their issues were addressed, but in particular, People who live in America who are suffering the effects of climate change the most felt like they were left out of this. So, Brandon, what is your read on what this bill does or does not do for vulnerable communities, for disadvantaged communities across the country? Did Democrats succeed in making sure this bill worked for them? Well, ultimately, the political reality of that is that the bill is whatever Joe Manchin would accept. And I think that there are political constituencies out there that they understand that. But what is harmful is that in this bill, there are trade-offs. There are things in there for fossil fuels and fossil fuel infrastructure. And we all know that where that lives is in certain communities. You're talking specifically here about oil and gas drilling leases in the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska's Cook Inlet. The bill would also require that the federal government continue to hold regular auctions for oil and gas leases alongside new plans for wind and solar projects. This is on federal lands. Companies would also be rewarded for investing in carbon capture technology with tax credits, which could be positive for the climate, but it ultimately keeps you know, fossil fuel plants open uh, for longer periods. So is, is that what you're referring to? Yeah, that and then, you know, the upcoming permitting reform, you know, where pipelines will be potentially permitted faster. Mm -hmm. And so the communities that have suffered first and worst from pollution feel like they will continue to suffer worse, you know, from this and that they can be the chip. You know, they're always the chip that gets traded uh, for these deals. And so the winners continue to win and they continue to bear the brunt of all this. And so I think... The people I've talked with that share that sentiment, they understand the political reality. Nobody has to treat them like they're ignorant about what we're dealing with with Joe Manchin. 
obviously Democrats would have supported a different bill, but people know this was the best that they could get. But I think it was some of the tone that came out, you know, people were celebrating and not checking and talking. A lot of this is communication and making sure that the EJ communities that feel like they were, you know, left out of this process, you know, I think that some of the communications that happened immediately after this announcement, you know, caused some hurt feelings. And I think that, you know, we need to be honest about that. And we need to think very deeply about how to include those communities going forward. There's $60 billion in the Inflation Reduction Act for uh, environmental justice. You know, that's a start. But I know, speaking for myself, I'm really open because of the platform that we have through this podcast, you know, through the work we do on policy, through the CEOs and founders we work with on the investment side, you know, that are all going to benefit, you know, from this legislation. How can we convene and try to make things as right as possible? Uh, and I'm always open for ideas on that. So if listeners or anybody else out there uh, has stuff for us, you know, if political climate can help support that in any way. Um, I think that would be, you know, the right thing to do. I mean, it's amazing the coalitions it took to get here, right? You did finally start to see some of the clean tech sector interact with environmental justice organizations and local communities. I know working on trying to get a refundable tax credit for people who do not have enough tax liability to take advantage of tax credits. We worked with 350 different organizations from those in Appalachia to the NAACP and others. And it was an incredible coalition that got cut from the bill. So in my mind, that is one of those things that was meant to be more inclusive, fix a loophole where everyone can benefit from tax credits, even if you don't have tax liability. But that was the kind of thing that got cut. So you're still like, oh, we won. But I can see the point that there are some real meaningful programs that got cut in the process and they maybe disproportionately affect some of the most vulnerable communities in the country. Yeah, and we may not be as far away as people think from making those fixes. The Senate is actually looking pretty good for Democrats right now. You look at some of these state-by-state races, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Georgia, Democrats are doing pretty well. If we can pick up two seats, then it's not up to you know one senator from Virginia to make the decision. That is a potential scenario. Now, we'd have to keep the House, but you look at the stuff that happened in Kansas over the last week, and the, the politics are, are very fluid right now in this country. And so- you know, if we could keep the House and add two Senate seats, maybe we could go back to work and get a civilian climate corps or some of these other things that were left out that could help frontline communities more. I always like to look to uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger for uh, his comments on, on big, you know, major developments like this. And he does not mince words. He kind of, you know, states his mind uh, bluntly. And he said recently in a newsletter, I don't love every single thing about it. This is the IRA bill, but that's how policy works. This isn't a dictatorship. You never get to attend. You have to make compromises. I wish Congress would always remember this. Whether I love everything or not, you know what? The biggest investment any country has ever made in clean energy is a big bleeping deal. <laughs> Fact. But the compromise always involves the same people. Right. 
Let's take a moment though on what is in the bill. There is lots to unpack here and I think we'll continue to do this over the coming days. So Shane, let's first go to you to talk about some of the big ticket items, some of the tax credits, which are really the foundation, I think, of American clean energy policy when you think about it. They've existed for many years. This bill extends many of the tax credits for 10 years. Could you sort of take us through some of the core elements, starting with the renewable sector and then some newer technologies? There's a lot. Um, One thing, and you flagged this earlier, uh, that they did not include refundability. But one of the things the bill ended up doing is actually treating consumer credits with some of the same sort of seriousness that commercial credits get. And I can break that down in a minute. But for commercial clean energy development, I mean, there was some huge ones. So the, the investment tax credit and the production tax credit. And so for our listeners, the investment tax credit is you get a credit for the dollars that you spend deploying the project that meets the criteria in the law. And the production credit is opposite. It's you actually get a credit for the clean energy that you're producing. So you'd get paid per kilowatt hour, you know, if you're at a wind facility or something like that. Those were extended a couple years to build time uh, for attack neutral credit. So one of the things that Chairman Wyden has been trying to do at the Senate Finance Committee is rather than bifurcate all these different technologies, say, here's what we're looking for. And here's when we should stop subsidizing these technologies. And so there's still a separate investment credit and a separate production credit. But instead of phasing out in a certain number of years, they phase out based on overall power sector emissions reductions. That's a new concept that's pretty interesting. It's going to take a couple of years to get that up and running. So they extended the credits as is uh, for a couple of years and did that. So going to tech neutral credits, what technologies would suddenly get credits that don't get them today? What does it functionally do that didn't exist in the policy paradigm before? I'd have to go through a list of every technology, but I think the direct answer to your question on what does it do functionally? I think the intent was that you're not saying, I like this technology because we make it in my district, or I like this technology because of some you know pet project reason for me. Like the criteria is it has to have no more than zero associated GHG emissions. So, of course, that means you know no greenhouse gas emissions. If it meets that standard, then it gets treated the same under the tax code. There's a, obviously a bunch of nuance all over the place, but that was the idea is instead of identifying technologies and how you want to treat them, you're saying the goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the power sector by 75%. So if that's the goal, if you help do that, you are eligible in the way that every other technology that helps do that is. And the credit just goes on and on until those goals are achieved. It's just a different way of solving, you know, I guess, the same problem. Um, and that's just in the electric sector. There's still a ton of other credits and other policies throughout this bill. But those are the main ones in trying to deploy commercial scale or utility scale clean energy production assets. So what about the residential side? So residential, um, those are usually, you know, an afterthought. They don't get treated the same way. They don't get extended for quite as long. The credit amounts are always capped, you know, not always, but often capped in dollar amounts. Uh, One of the issues that you addressed earlier, Julia, is that they're not refundable. So that's something that, you know, hopefully will get fixed at some point. It doesn't make any sense. So for the the residential energy generation credit, it extends it uh, for 10 years and then phases it down uh, similar to what was happening now. So for our listeners, the solar credit, rooftop solar credit, or, or, you know, some sort of household generation asset. It could be remote wind. It could be any number of things. That was phasing down from the 30% level. It was going to 26, then 22, and eventually gone. So they reset that at 30% and extended that 10 years. And that phase out starts like 10 years from now, uh, which gives, you know, a lot of, a lot of technology, plenty of time to deploy. Uh, It also adds storage to that. So in the old days, um, Storage as a standalone asset wasn't eligible for the credit. 
if it was powered by renewable energy, then it was it was eligible as part of the, the larger investment. But storage has a ton of utility, even if you're just you know taking power off the grid. So adding storage as a technology was a big win. Uh, then on the efficiency side, what you can actually you know have in your home, there used to be a 10% credit for qualifying efficient appliances. So that could be your HVAC, that could be your clothes washers and dryers, uh, water heaters, um, you know cooktops, uh, ovens, all this sort of stuff. It was a 10% credit, but then it was capped at like $500 lifetime. So if you bought like one stove, you were never able to use that credit again. And what it ultimately did was it reset that to $1,200 per household per year. So if you replace one thing this year, you can replace a different thing next year, a different thing next year, and so on and so forth. It also gives priority to clean space heating and water heating. So heat pump technology, which has taken off in recent years uh, in the U.S., that is eligible for a $2,000 credit, and that's not part and parcel of the $1,200. So if you went and got yourself a new heat pump for space heating, air source heat pump, you could get a $2,000 credit for that, and then you could still improve something else in your home and get $1,200. So in theory, you could get six times as much in one year as you used to could get in your entire life, and then you can continue to update your household and improve your efficiency. So those are you know pretty serious, uh, pretty good credits. So one thing I want to talk about, going back to the commercial tax credits, that being tax credits for large-scale wind and solar projects, is this concept of transferability. There was a concept that a lot of those companies were pushing for. The industry really wanted to have what's called direct pay, where you get a direct payment from the IRS for a tax credit, which would mean that those developers are no longer as reliant on tax equity markets, meaning they have to have big financial institutions like Goldman Sachs's of the world claim the tax credit on their behalf and invest in the projects. But that is a limited pool of of available capital just due to the financial institution's own tax liability. So the idea of direct pay is that it would ease the burden on those developers. Direct pay for companies did not get put into the bill. We'll talk in a second about what did, but transferability was added in. So Shane, what is that concept and how does it work and how significant will it be? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting concept. So basically, you can sell the value of your credit to any third party. So it doesn't have to be, like you said, a Goldman Sachs who's investing in your project. And so if I have a $100 million project and my credit's worth $30 million, but I only have like $4 million of tax liability, that credit's not very meaningful to me. And so what I would do is I would go sell that $30 million credit to some other entity that had you know, a tax liability. One of the most interesting things to me about transferability is that nobody seems to know how it works. So I won't name names, but I've talked to several large business interests today and trying to figure out if this has value and no one knows. Um, There's a couple issues here. One is the same bill had a 15% book tax included, basically a corporate minimum tax. So this doesn't negate that, meaning that there may not be enough tax credit appetite out there to buy these credits because if an entity could reduce their liability by 30 million, but that would bring them under the book value. It's like an alternative minimum tax anyway. And so they wouldn't get the full value of the credit. Uh, The second thing is time value of money. And so I will never pay you $30 million for a $30 million credit. Maybe I'll give you 20, but I have to have some benefit here. Otherwise I'm just giving you my capital. And there's no reason for me to take that back end risk that I might not be able to fully use the credit. And of course, again, the time value of money. And so No one knows what the customer base like this is because it hasn't existed before. So in in theory, it's a really interesting concept. But I think at the end of the day, there's going to be a discount market for this. Um, Someone told me that when the child tax credit, I think it was the child tax credit, like the first refundable credit, something like that, people were getting paid 42 cents on the dollar. 
Um, now, if that's true, this credit would be really interesting because that $30 million would turn into $14 million or whatever it is. We just don't know yet. So I think the concept is really interesting, but people who are going to either utilize this or not, I mean, serious players have no idea right now what the value of this is to them. And so for the rest of us who aren't in these markets, I mean, who knows? It could have huge <laughs> uptake or none. Okay. So we'll put a pin in that one because it was the idea was to try and help these renewable energy markets grow by, again, easing the reliance on tax equity markets. Sounds like open question on how much transferability really helps with that. But speaking of direct pay, there is a provision in the bill that would allow nonprofit entities, also municipal governments, tribal governments, to take advantage of direct pay, which does have some real value to it. Describe what that is. And this question actually comes from a listener, how important it is. Does that mean political climate is eligible for the direct pay? <laughs> Are we a nonprofit? I don't think we're a nonprofit, technically. We don't profit. We don't make much money. <laughs> <laughs> we don't make a profit, but technically we are not a nonprofit. <laughs> Crap. Uh, that's, that's a quagmire. <laughs> uh, I think I think direct pay is incredibly important for these entities because they don't have by debt by law, they don't have tax liability. They can't. They're tax-free entities. And so 30% is a lot. I, I think of traditionally like municipal utilities, power generation on tribal lands, uh, rural electric cooperatives. They would have had no way, not just to monetize the credit, but to, to claim it at all. And so this is really great for those entities because if they're engaging in these large projects, the way direct pay works is under law, it's treated as taxes paid to the government. So if you are, you get to this, let's say a $10 million credit, and you have zero tax liability because you're a 501c3 or some other sort of municipal nonprofit, you just get a check for $10 million directly from the government. So I think the needle they were trying to thread with transferability is the government shouldn't be in the business of writing checks to large developers, but it can be in the business of helping you know, smaller entities or entities that don't have you know, as much access to, to capital markets. And transferability, I think, was their way around that, saying if you guys want to figure out a market construct to monetize this, knock yourself out, but we're not writing these checks. Interesting. In terms of scale, I guess when you think about municipal utilities and you think about nonprofit entities, there are a lot around the country. So I don't know the, the sheer gigawatts, but you have to imagine that this is going to have immense local impact to see those nonprofits be able to get direct pay and build and own those projects. Well, one last thing on direct pay is that certain technologies also got this benefit, specifically carbon capture, hydrogen production, and then one more, I think, Shane, tell me what it is. Yeah, so there were carbon capture projects. There was also domestic manufacturing of clean energy technologies. That's the one. And they got five years of direct pay. So it's a 12-year credit when you place a product or a qualifying project in service. It's a 12-year credit, these production tax credits. And so the first five years under this bill is direct pay, and then the last seven's not. And presumably, the theory is that you're going to be profitable and have a tax liability on the back end if you get that upfront advantage. But the domestic manufacturing credit is incredibly interesting because we've never had anything like that before. A lot of these other credits are akin to similar credits or you added new technologies. Uh, but this is a production credit for actually making things here, whether that's making batteries in the United States of America, whether that's making um, or processing the minerals that you use in batteries, whether that's manufacturing solar wafers and solar panels. A lot of things that we just don't have in the U.S. are, are added uh, to this bill and made direct pay because they're such young industries or at least domestic young industries. Political Climate is brought to you by MCE. 
MCE was California's first community choice energy provider. For more than 10 years, MCE has helped communities across the Bay Area source significantly more renewable energy than the state average. Nearly 40 communities are now a part of MCE, and together they're leading on climate action for a brighter future. But the power of MCE is about more than clean energy. It's the power of people over profit. It's community power. MCE's efforts on climate justice have helped vulnerable communities gain access to electric vehicles, energy storage, and energy savings. By building and buying more renewable energy, MCE puts the power back in your hands. We all deserve a fossil-free future that combats climate change and prioritizes energy equity. Learn more and take action at mcecleanenergy.org. So speaking of other technologies, Brandon, I want to go to you for the investor perspective. Like, does this just blow open the market? Is this the, you know, policy framework that investors like you are looking for? Uh, Do you feel like the bill puts the emphasis in the right places? Um, And if so, how? Like, what are the opportunities that you're seeing from an investment perspective stemming from the Inflation Reduction Act? Yeah, I want to make a few points, Julia. First, you know, a month ago, I think the climate tech investment consensus was that valuations of these companies would come down for a couple of reasons. One, the macroeconomic trends, you know, people thought we were headed towards a recession. Um, so that would, you know, deflate these valuations a little bit. And two, the performance of certain climate tech stocks. If you look at some of the SPAC, you know, transactions that happened, like Sunlight Financial, some of the performance of these stocks, people felt like they were underperforming. So that wasn't the greatest, you know, environment to be in. Well, if you're an investor, valuations coming down can be a good thing. But if you're a company and there's less exits, you know, that is not a good thing. But now, since the bill was unveiled in the last week and a half, look at the stock performance of several of these companies. You look at Sunrun, SunPower, First Solar, Tesla, you know, some of the ETFs that contain, you know, several different stocks, they're all up 20, 30, 40 percent uh, in the last week and a half. So I think you're going to see maybe, uh, you know, valuation staying high uh, and more exits happening and higher public valuations could be good for, you know, investment. I think what investors will be excited about with this bill is when you think about the Inflation Reduction Act and you combine it with the bipartisan infrastructure bill that became law and had hundreds of billions of dollars in climate and the CHIPS Act that we referenced earlier in the show, there's climate initiatives in there, climate investment happening there. And then you look at some of the states, like California is going to pass a $45 billion budget for climate this month. You have the contours of a real industrial policy in this country and certainty. You know, in the past, you know, Shane's always talked about the tax extenders, right? At the end of the year, there's this ritual in DC where they do this tax extender and it's like, are we or are we not? And we lurch from year to year, are the tax credits going to be extended? Well, now you know what the environment's going to look like for the next 10 years on the investment tax credit, the production tax credit. And you're having investment. When you look at like the way venture is structured, do you want to use venture capital for that demonstration facility? Maybe not, but the government putting in some money and doing a cost share of 50-50, you know, that can make it a lot easier to do something like that. So I think this is going to be a huge win for the climate tech investment community, for the companies. And I'm really excited about it. We were already seeing great deal flow um, and great things in the market. This is going to turbocharge that market, I think. 
Yeah, it's funny to think that the U.S. wind production credit was already expired, I think, before this bill. It was already gone. So like, that's just an example of how these policies come and they go and then the industry has to lurch back and forth. And the consistency and the predictability, as you note, is huge and could open up markets like offshore wind in America and these exciting new industries we've barely begun to tap. So that's really interesting. And then there's all sorts of other stuff. Like um, there's a hydrogen production tax credit for the first time ever. That's $3 per kilogram. For those of you who don't track hydrogen markets, uh, that's a ton of money. Now, the number came from the fact that the Department of Energy currently says that it costs an average of $5 per kilogram to produce green hydrogen. And that's hydrogen that's produced by splitting water and using only renewable power to do it. So this is a zero emissions process from you know head to toe. They get a $3 credit and that brings it down to about a $2 market rate, which makes it more competitive with other types of hydrogen. But they also incentivize blue hydrogen, which is where you use a reformation process and you strip hydrogen from natural gas and then you can capture um, carbon and and inject it underground. So the upside there is, is you have a fuel that can be used in industry. You have a fuel that can potentially be used in aviation. It can be used in heavy trucking. And when it burns, when it combusts, it has no GHG emissions associated with it whatsoever. So if you think of what class eight trucks and buses do on our highways and how much of um, U.S. GHG emissions are based on transportation sources, that can just disappear overnight, which is pretty amazing if, if, if this technology scales and, and the end use vehicles are there. So you mentioned transportation, Shane. Talk to us about the EV tax credits. This was a major part of the negotiations with Senator Manchin. Where did we land on tax credits for EVs? Yeah, the honest answer is I'm still trying to figure that out and talking to our transportation team who's much you know more adept on this than I am. But the short answer is that under current law, there was a $7,500 EV credit. And that was for, on a per manufacturer basis, up to 200,000 vehicles sold. And then it started phasing out quarter after quarter. So for example, GM and Tesla vehicles were not eligible for that credit under current law. If you go buy a Ford, you can get your $7,500 credit if you go buy a Tesla, you, you cannot. So that was a differentiator in the marketplace. The new bill focuses far less on per manufacturer. In fact, it doesn't focus on per manufacturer at all. It's a credit of up to $7,500 based on where the battery components and the critical materials like nickel, zinc, um, cobalt, uh, lithium are sourced. And so if you meet the domestic sourcing requirements for the minerals and you meet the domestic sourcing requirements for the battery components, then you get a $7,500 credit. And it doesn't matter um, who manufactured the vehicle. Uh, it does have to be assembled in North America. So interestingly, it doesn't have to be a final assembly in the US, uh, but it does have to be assembled in North America. The reason I said that I don't know the answer to your question is that what I just shared with you is what I do know. I've heard several people who are very sort of sophisticated in this space say that it's unclear how many vehicles currently being manufactured in the world would qualify for this credit based on some of those other requirements. I'm not sure exactly the why and the how there, but there is some concern that there won't be a lot of qualifying vehicles, at least in the early years of this credit. Yeah, I think it's interesting that there's these domestic manufacturing requirements because like, I don't know who qualifies for that. So it's like a, a phantom credit in a way, if that's true, right? Doesn't even Tesla that manufactures largely in the U.S. still rely on international supply chains? Well, I think I think a lot of automobile manufacturers writ large and electric vehicle manufacturers do as well. And so this was, I think, the compromise. Um, and Brandon and Julia and I were talking about this earlier. I'd love to get Brandon's view on this here. But the compromise was 
in the old days, this clean energy policy was about point source emissions reductions, period. So if you don't have a tailpipe that's spewing carbon into the atmosphere, that's good. And so the incentive was for the electric vehicle because the electric vehicle was the thing that stopped you from emitting from your tailpipe. This bill looks a lot more like industrial policy. So they're saying, yes, we want electric vehicles, but also none of this stuff is made here. So we don't want to start passing laws and incentives that enrich our, our counterparts overseas like China. So if I'm going to subsidize this thing because it's a public good, we want this thing being made here with American labor, creating American jobs um, and helping grow our economy. So these tax credits are written very, very differently than they would have been written, you know, even just five years ago. Yeah, I think that's an important point because there's a massive trend in this bill for onshoring and supply chain. And if you think about where Europe is right now with natural gas, you know, they had this issue, you know, the the war with Russia and they were in a position of weakness. <laughs> um, and so right now, you know, we're building this clean energy economy. These, you know, minerals and, and being able to control supply chain uh, is very important to that from a national security perspective. Because if we're dependent on China for like solar panels, where 80% of our panels come from China right now, if we get into a trade war with China, we're not going to be able to get those panels, right? And so that would be a position of weakness. So I think a major priority in this bill that is exciting is we're going to make these products in America. That's going to be good for jobs, good for our economy, and good that we're not dependent on hostile powers for the things that we need to power, literally power our economy. And then we can make those goods here and we can sell them to the rest of the world. Well, you're talking about China there. We're speaking as tensions are rising. We already saw China announce in recent days that they're withdrawing from any climate uh, negotiations and agreements with the U.S. in light of tensions over Taiwan and how Speaker Nancy Pelosi visiting Taiwan in recent days. So this reality, uh, this future you talked about there is part of our present day reality. Well, we mentioned U.S. manufacturing. There is $40 billion for clean manufacturing tax credits in the IRA, also $20 billion for clean vehicle manufacturing. So then we talked earlier about these tax credits for renewable projects or clean energy projects under the investment tax credit language. And those had these adders that uh, allow developers to get even greater tax benefits if they use domestic content. That, I think, adds up to another 10% bonus on top of 30% to use that domestic content at varying levels and increases over time. So to your point, Shane, about industrial policy, it really does feel like this is baked into many different facets of the bill. It, it really seems to be baked into every part of the bill, which is which is what makes it incredibly interesting for me. But I think while it does make some of these provisions difficult to wrestle with, it does negate a huge talking point, and not just from a political perspective, but from a practical perspective, which is why would we convert our economy to something that runs on things only made by our enemies? And so this sort of helps solve that. You say, okay, you're right. We don't want to source oil from you know Saudi Arabia or Iran or Venezuela. Uh, we can produce that here. Well, we don't want to source these things from China, um, but we'll produce those here. So I think it, it addresses one of the largest blind spots that I think clean energy's had uh, in recent years. Well, it's a good thing that this bill lasts for 10 years, though, because it does take time to build those supply chains, and we'll have to see how fast the country can make that happen. So there's plenty more we could discuss. There's everything from what becomes effectively the first national green bank. This is around $27 billion that will help uh, cities that have green banks and other institutions offer financing, low-cost financing in sectors that need it. 
There's also a reduction in methane emissions from the oil and gas sector through a methane fee for operators who are leaking methane. And the list goes on and on and on. So I guess, Brandon, where does this leave us today? We're recording on Monday. Our episode comes out Thursday. We're going to look to the House next to pass this. As we speak, that's slated for a Friday. Presumably, President Biden will sign shortly after. What does that mean for Democrats going forward if they get this over the finish line? I think it's a huge win. Uh, We have to deliver the message, though. You know, in the past, you know, we haven't been as good about that. And so if you look at Joe Biden's record over the last two years and what he did on COVID uh, when he first became president, and you look at, you know, people have talked about trying to get infrastructure done. You know, Obama tried. We couldn't. Trump said he would do it and didn't. And Biden finally got it done. And the Chips and Science Act is a big deal for us to compete with China. Semiconductors are a critical part of our economy. And that was a massive boost to make that happen here. And then, you know, he gets this uh, Inflation Reduction Act done. And you put that all together it's a pretty strong two years. And if we can communicate that effectively to the voters, uh, there's a lot in there that's popular. You know, there's a data for progress poll about the Inflation Reduction Act. 73% of voters support it, including a majority of Republican voters. Uh, So there's a lot of good things in here to campaign on. And as I mentioned, you know, very quickly before, the politics are fluid coming out of the Supreme Court decisions, uh, where we're seeing massive turnout in places like Kansas, uh, where you had a 20-point win on you know, pro-choice. So that's what we're seeing is you know, suburban voters, you know, they may be, despite everything that's happening with inflation and whatnot, those voters may go Democrat in the fall, for all we know. So I think uh, it's going to be a very exciting November election. Democrats have a lot to run on with these popular policies that have been passed, we just have to drive it home with the voters so that they see the benefits and hopefully can feel them. Because the money won't flow before November, obviously, right? But getting the message to those voters of how they're going to benefit from this will be key. Well, there is one way in which money flows, that 30% tax credit for residential solar becomes available in 2022. So there's never a better time to go solar than right now. You can get it this year. (laughs) Call me. Shane, any final thoughts on this episode? No, just that you should do QVC. And that's not all. You know, you can really you can really sell some product. I got a future. You get Deborah Vance over here, a young Deborah Vance, you know, from Hacks. <laughs> oh my god. Um, all right, we'll leave it there for this episode and come back and revisit more of the details as we dig through all of it and find out more about the implications of what people are saying. Looking next to seeing this pass in the house and getting President Biden to sign it. For now, thanks to everyone so much for listening. Thanks also to Kyle McDonald, our editor, and to Maria Virginia Alano, our producer. Catch us on Twitter at poly, P-O-L-I underscore climate. Leave us your feedback on this episode or things you want us to cover more on upcoming episodes about the Inflation Reduction Act or, or other items as we head into the election season. I'm Julia Piper. That is all for now. Thank you. Julia, what's our truth social handle? How do you turn this recorder off? Mm-hmm. <laughs>